welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. I'd like to begin this morning with a meditation in preparation for worship. And it comes from our lectionary reading in Deuteronomy Chapter 30, verse 15. These are the very words of God. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Let us pray. Gracious and mighty Lord, when we meditate on the word before us just now, it creates in us an awe reserved for you. There is none beside you that sets before us life and good, death and evil. Let the words of the second law drive us to our knees in supplication. Fill our souls with a desire only you can fulfill. Give rise to our voices that ring throughout the land with praise and honor and thanksgiving. And bring us a peace that transcends all understanding. We pray that this be a sacred time of your people gathered in your name to gaze upon the beauty and goodness of our great God and the people of God say, Amen. Amen. So at this time, I would invite you to please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. This morning's exhortation comes from Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. As we consider again uh, during these exhortations, the promises of God, think about this. When God says something, he means it. When God says something, we should listen and take note. And the fact that we hear the voice of Almighty God in all its majestic truth and glory should simultaneously bring us great joy and also great trembling. The one who has purified us with the blood of Jesus will also cleanse us by the water of the Holy Spirit. God has said it, and it must be, you shall be clean. And it is Jesus who will deliver us from our worst sins, the devastation of unbelief, the lustful desires that wage war against our souls, the despicable thoughts of pride, the vile self-satisfaction of hypocrisy, 
the whispering of Satan to blaspheme the sacred name of Jesus. It is Jesus who will also cleanse us from all our idolatry, no matter what they may be. And as we wrestle with these very sins that cause us to stand a guilty distance from God, these very sins which cause the apostle to crowd in anguish, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? These sins that, when David remained silent, made his bones waste away through his day-long groaning. These sins which resulted in righteous judgment against a whole generation within a chosen nation to be denied the prize they wandered 40 years to gain. It is God himself who speaks as to what he himself will do. Therefore, this promise is established and sure. We may boldly look for that which it guarantees, cleansing. It is the blessing of the covenant, and the covenant is, as stated in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, ordered in all things and secure. So now as you are able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Please rise now for the assurance of pardon. The Lord and giver of life tells us in Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe your sins are forgiven through Christ. The sermon text this morning is from John 17, verses 1 to 5. These are the words of God. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Let's pray together. Father, your word is truth. And so we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would set us free by the truth and unite us to the one who is the truth. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Please be seated. John 17 is a mysterious and difficult chapter. Here and here only are we given an unbroken and extended prayer from the Son to the Father. John 17 is a prayer from one person who is fully God and fully man to another person who is equally and co-essentially God with him. So there are dangers in this text. There are heresies around every corner if you are not careful. Because this is one of those rare places in Scripture where the veil is uh, sort of pulled back and we are given just the tiniest glimpse into the inner life of the God who is Trinity. Now one of the first questions that should arise when you come to a text like John 17, which is uh, arguably the apex of Trinitarian revelation in Scripture, is to ask a very simple question, and that is, uh, why is Jesus praying at all? Have you ever thought about that? Why, Why does Jesus pray? If Jesus is fully God, 
Uh, doesn't he answer prayers? And who is he talking to? How does this work? Is this like uh, sending an email to yourself so you don't forget? Well, no, uh, not exactly. And whereas uh, we are praying throughout the day, confessing our sins, asking God for help to keep from sinning, Jesus has no sins to confess. So what's up with him departing from his disciples and going off into desolate places to pray? Why does he leave the crowds to go and talk to his father? What need does Jesus have to pray? How would you answer that question? One answer that theologians have given uh, to this question is that Jesus prays for our instruction. That is to say, Jesus prays in order to teach us how to pray, to model for us what true prayer looks like. And then we have uh, this specific prayer recorded in Scripture so that we will know what Jesus has asked the Father for, so that we can be confident that whatever he asks for, the Father will grant it. Remember in Psalm 2, the Father is telling the Son, ask me for the nations. And here, now you have Jesus giving requests unto the Father. So Jesus prays as an example, as a model for us. He prays to commune with his Father. But we also see within this prayer itself that Jesus prays for another reason. If you look in uh, verse 13, it says this, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. These things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So at least here, one of the reasons, perhaps the stated reason that Jesus prays, is so that his joy would be fulfilled in you. Do you have this joy? Jesus just got done telling his disciples in the verse prior, chapter 16, verse 33, he says, In this world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He says a few verses earlier, Now you have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. He's about to go to the cross, and he says, No man can take this joy from you. This is why Jesus prays. So that the love and the joy and the unity that he has had with the Father from before there was time would be given to us. So that's the purpose of everything we read in John 17. Joy, your joy. And the broader context of this chapter is that these are Jesus' parting words to his disciples. This is his farewell to his disciples before his hour of passion. If you read through uh, the Gospel of John, you'll hear over and over again, no, my hour has not yet come. No, my hour has not yet come. No, my hour has not yet come. And then suddenly you get here, and he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. The time has come. This is what the entire Gospel of John has been leading up to. So what I want to do in this sermon is uh, really just zero in on one verse, and that is verse 3, John 17, verse 3. And this is a, a wonderful verse uh, to memorize, a very important verse in the Bible. It says, 
And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So if someone asks you, what is eternal life? You can answer that question. What is it? It's to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So I just want to spend our whole time talking about uh, these words, this one verse. And there are three questions I want to ask and answer related to it. And they are these. Uh, Number one, what kind of knowledge leads to eternal life? There's lots of knowledge out there, but what kind of knowledge can make you live forever? This, This is a question that we need to answer. Secondly, How do you get this knowledge? And then third, what are the fruits or results of this knowledge? So the kind of knowledge, how you get it, the fruits of this knowledge. That's where we're going. So question one, what kind of knowledge leads to eternal life? Um, As I said, there are many forms of knowledge in the world and in Scripture, but not all of them have the power to make you live eternally. Uh, So for example, uh, some people in this community have a knowledge of farming, or a knowledge of accounting, or a knowledge of how to sew, or bake a cake, or make really good coffee. But on Judgment Day, that knowledge is not going to gain you entrance into heaven, uh, no matter how good uh, the latte is. This is all uh, useful knowledge, it's good knowledge, it's even beautiful knowledge. But it is insufficient to make you live forever. So perhaps you say to me, well, the kind of knowledge you need is a knowledge of God. And I would say, yes, you are correct. But even there, Scripture makes further distinctions. For example, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that everyone has some knowledge of God, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That is to say, there are not really any true atheists in the world. There are only people who know God and don't like him, so they pretend that he doesn't exist. They know God, and they exchange the truth for a lie, and serve the creature, which is usually themselves, rather than the creator who made them. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, 19-22. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You would think Paul was describing our generation. And in a certain uh, respect, he is. There are those who have the power to perceive creation with their senses. And they have some true and real knowledge of who God is. It says, his eternal power and Godhead. And yet, because of their ingratitude, because they don't say thank you, because they are self-centered, they turn away from this light and they say, I would rather live in darkness. And that is the state of the world. That is the state of every single person apart from Christ. So you can see this uh, schizophrenia. They know God and yet they don't know him. 
they know him like you might know the author of a story that you really don't want to read. They do not know him as a savior. They know him only as a judge. And so this is a knowledge that only condemns. It is knowledge kind of like demons have knowledge. James 2.19 says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You can believe there's one God. It's not enough. You can believe that there is one God and tremble at that knowledge. And James says, yeah, the devils do too. So you can know God and go straight to hell. You can really know God and go straight to hell. Not all knowledge of God saves. And so what kind of knowledge of God is Jesus talking about here that can make you live forever? Well, consider this. Uh, A man cannot give what he does not have. You agree? This is a self-evident truth. I cannot give you a cute puppy. I have no cute puppies to give you. I probably never will. I cannot give you a fluffy kitten. I have no fluffy kittens to give. Right? Uh, so if we are going to receive life eternal, uh, it must be from someone or something that already possesses it. And not just that, they also must want to give it to you. They must also have the power and ability to communicate, to give what they possess unto you. Do you see the analogy? Now, who has eternal life? And all the kids said, God, God. God is life. God is the plentitude and fountain and fullness of being. There is no life apart from him. There is nothing that exists outside of him. As it says in Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. And so the knowledge of God that Jesus is talking about here is knowledge that unites you to the life of God. It is the difference between knowing about your spouse before the first date and then knowing them in the covenant of marriage and the intimacy of the marriage bed. One is from a distance, from afar, and one is face to face. This saving knowledge of God is the latter. It is knowledge that indwells you, that penetrates into your very intellect and transforms your will. John 1, 4-5 says, In the Son, in Him, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So what kind of knowledge gives eternal life? The kind of knowledge that is a living person. The person of the Son, who is life and proceeds from the Father. You could talk about the metaphysics of how this works. This is where some of the commentators go. You think about... What is the eternal word? He is immaterial, right? God does not have a body. He is a spirit. But most of us conceive of life as strictly physical. But there is another plane, a whole other mode of life that God possesses. And so this is where when Paul says you are being merely earthly minded or fleshly or carnal, he's saying 
you are regarding only things that pertain to the body as regarding life and death. But Jesus says, no, there is a higher plane of life. If the immaterial, eternal son took on human flesh, then that same eternal, immaterial word can be communicated to you who are flesh and spirit, and it can transform you from the inside out. There are great uh, mysteries here. But this is what eternal life is. It is to know God, to have Him indwell you, to indwell in Him, and to know Jesus Christ whom He has sent. So that is what eternal life is. That is what the knowledge of God is that can save you. This brings us to our second question, and that is, well, how do you get this knowledge? I would like to live forever. How can I get this? Well, unlike the knowledge of God that comes by just looking at creation or by uh, studying or going to school, the knowledge that comes by what we call natural revelation, this saving knowledge of God requires two things. It requires the word and it requires faith. How do you get this knowledge? You need the word and you need faith. The word of God must be spoken and heard and received into your heart. And then your heart must grab hold of that word by faith. This is what it means to believe the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing. And hearing by the word of God. If you want faith, you need to hear God's word. He says a few verses earlier in Romans 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so eternal life comes to you from believing that Jesus is alive, that God resurrected him from the dead and that he is Lord. This is what we preach to a world in darkness. We preach, as, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the job of the church. This is what is to be proclaimed from the pulpit every Lord's Day. Light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you have this light? Do you possess This light within you? Have you beheld his glory and loved him? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ? That's how valuable knowing God is. You think about all the possessions you can accumulate in this world, and Jesus says, You can gain the world and you can still lose your soul. And Paul gives us the reverse. He says, I count everything as loss, even his own life, for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That is the investment that Paul calls all of us to make. Invest in this knowledge of God. It will pay eternal dividends. So the only way to know Christ is by his word. And yet still this is not enough. It must be believed. You must do it. You must love the one who is the word. 
Paul warns us in Hebrews 4.12, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Think about that. The gospel goes out, it's preached. A whole bunch of people hear the exact same sermon, but to some people, it just falls flat. Doesn't do anything to them. And to some people, it's got them resurrected, living, living like they've never lived before. And Paul says the difference is is not in the message, it's not in the word, it's in you. Is there faith in you and word up here? When those things meet, life comes. But if there is no faith, it will not profit you. You could read your Bible. You can listen to good preaching. You can go to a reformed church. You can give your kids a Christian education. But if those things are not done and mixed with faith, it will be of no profit to you. So if we would have this knowledge of God, and if we would desire to have eternal life with him, we must receive the word of God by faith. We must believe all that the apostles and prophets wrote, for they testified and spoke of him. Finally, question three. We ask then, what are the fruits of or results of this knowledge. How can you know if you have this knowledge? What are the signs that you possess this eternal life even now? Well, Scripture gives us uh, many images, many metaphors for spiritual life. Um, I'd like to just draw your attention to two of them. Uh, One would be the image of living water. Think about what you know of the Bible, all the places that water appears. It's one of the very first things that is there in Genesis 1. The Spirit is hovering over the water. The water is separated into two. There's a firmament, water's above, water's below. There's going to be a flood. There's water, water, water all through. And uh, the the apostles, uh, the prophets, they pick up this image and use it as a sign and symbol of eternal life. And they contrast it with uh, what you might call dead water or polluted water water. Living water flows. It has movement. It is pure and clean, and it brings life to wherever it goes. Remember uh, the Garden of Eden? How many rivers flew, uh, flowed out of it? There was four. There was four rivers that flowed out of it, and it brought life to the world. So this is what living water does. And Jesus says this uh, earlier in John's gospel. He says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You believe in Christ, you uh, possess this knowledge, and he says, living waters are going to start to flow out of you. Okay, He's, He's clearly speaking metaphorically here. And what is he speaking of? He's speaking of another person, the person of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 22, we read that in the New Jerusalem, there is a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. You see in Ezekiel's temple, a similar image, water that is kind of just trickling out of the temple, but then becomes this huge flood that you have to swim across. This is an image of life. 
And it stands in contrast to these polluted waters. Or in scripture, you might know the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is where uh, the Jordan River terminates. And so it receives water, but it does not equally pass it on. You could say the Dead Sea is a selfish. They are the kind of person that Paul would say is always learning and yet never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. They know a lot of stuff, but they don't do anything with it and they become stagnant, dead. So do not be deceived, brethren. The knowledge of God unto eternal life should change you. It should affect everything you do. Perhaps not all at once, but slowly and surely these living waters should flow out of you and into everything that you touch. And so this is one of the signs of eternal life. Is this outflowing of the Holy Spirit, living water, going into other people? When you hang out with others, do they go away feeling purified and refreshed, or do they feel polluted, weighed down? Do you have the aroma of Christ about you, or does your life smell like a junior high locker room? If the Spirit of Christ dwells within you, then life should be springing up in those around you. This is why earlier in the service we all got on our knees and confessed our sins. Because how much, uh, how much can the kids pee in the pool until you want to get out of it? How much can the kids go potty in the ocean until you're like, this is not a place I want to be? We confess our sins because water is easily tainted. And we are dirty people. God is telling you that what is inside of you is disgusting by the fact that you have to brush your teeth every morning. And that you need to take a shower and all of the things that come out of you are gross. This is God's way of saying, uh, you need to be born again. You need a new body that only Jesus Christ can give you. So what is the water like in your home, in your marriage, in your children? Are there polluted streams that need to be cleansed? It's going to get dirty, but what are you going to do with it? Are there secret and hidden sins that are tainting your life? Do you think that it won't affect them if they don't know? If so, Christ calls you to confess those sins and to clean up this stream that is flowing out of your heart. A second image that Scripture gives us to illustrate spiritual life is that of the fruitful tree or vine. Once again, you could close your eyes and think about all of the different trees, the plants that we're talked about in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There are many. Might be an olive tree, might be a cedar tree, might be a fig tree, might be an almond blossom, might be a grapevine. But all of these uh, beautiful trees of different stature and fruit are, uh, they stand in contrast in scripture to uh, the bramble bush or the briar. The bramble bush or the briar. These are images that should call us back to the Garden of Eden, to the place where we first possessed eternal life and then lost it. Uh, If you remember Genesis 3, 
what was the curse upon the land? What was going to happen because of Adam and Eve's sin? What was going to spring out of the ground? What was that? Yeah, so that was the sin. That was the sin. And what was the result? What, was, what causes all of the agricultural difficulties now? Yeah. Weeds. Thorns. That suddenly you're going to have to weed. What, what would life have been like without weeds? One day we'll know. The curse upon the land was that thorns and thistles would make your life toilsome. And later in scripture, these realities of fruitful trees or thorns and thistles become associated with different kinds of people. There are those who are indwelt by the spirit of life and they bear the fruit of the spirit. So does your knowledge of God lead to love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control? Are these qualities evident and increasing? Or would people describe you as prickly, as difficult, as churlish? In Ezekiel 2, God calls those who are impudent and stiff-hearted in Israel briars and thorns. In Hebrews 6, it says... For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. Right? They receive the rain, they bear fruit. But verse 8, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Every one of us is headed for either eternal blessedness or eternal torment. And one of the ways you can know which direction you are headed in is by looking out at your branches. What are you producing? Is there fruit there? Or are there thorns? I'll close with this. Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. And so, if you know God, if you have eternal life already within you, then you are connected to the true vine. And you have the seeds of eternal life growing in you now. And if that is you, then you should expect your heavenly father, this faithful husbandman, to make you fruitful by cutting things off of you, by pruning you, by lopping off branches that you really like to look at. And he does all of this to make you more fruitful. For the Christian, the true Christian, that is what eternal life feels like on this side of resurrection. A lot of pruning, a lot of pain, a lot of cutting away, but a whole lot of fruit as a result. On the other hand, if you are hearing this sermon and thinking, I don't have this knowledge of God that you speak of. I don't see fruit in my life. I see a lot of thorns and a lot of briars. Well, then let me tell you what Jesus has done for you. Right after this prayer in John 17, Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, spit upon, mocked, stripped naked, scourged, and a crown of thorns 
will be placed upon his head. The very thorns that exist because of our sin, the very thorns that you and I brought into this world, Jesus wears like a crown before the world as he is nailed to a tree. And as he hung there, dead and lifeless, it says in John 19.34, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Life is in the blood. Water is for cleansing. And out of the dead body of Jesus Christ came a fountain of life for the whole world. The cross is where thorns go to die. The cross is where you can be made into a fruitful vine. And you can live forever if you will just believe on his name. For this is eternal life, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that we allow the cares of this life and the indwelling sin in our hearts to pollute the living stream that you want to pour forth out of us into this world. And so we thank you that you love to clean up your people. We thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you know just what we need. When we are full of fruit and life seems easy, you come and you cut us. You cut us for our good. You cut us to make us more like Christ, to conform us into his image. And God, I ask that by this word, by the preaching of your word, you would cleanse us. You would remove every spot and blemish from your bride that we would be known as a people that is united in our love for you, Mm -hmm. that people would know the glory of God, the glory of the Son, the glory of the Spirit when they encounter us, that you would clean up the stink in our life and that the aroma of Christ would go before us, that it would fill Lewis and Thurston County, all the places that we come from, that we could be life bringers to those who are thirsty, to those who need fruit and fruit that remains. This is something that only you can do. And we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. We come now to our time to join with one another at the Lord's table. As we consider that, I would like to speak a moment, just a brief, brief moment. And what's contained in chapter 29 of the Westminster Confession of 1646, it has this to say concerning the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament, his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper. Number one, to be observed in his church and to the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. And number two, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him. Number three, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him. And number four, to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. The bulletin that you have that you received today from us answers the question, may I come to the Lord's table? I would invite you to read and see the heart of our church regarding communion and feel welcome to join or abstain as your situation dictates.
What a powerful message of hope today that was delivered. Talking about the promise of God to cleanse us. That his word cleanses us. That we are, we are his people. And I charge you this Lord's Day to bear the name of Christ with distinction. In deference to God. And with grace and humility and thanksgiving. Let the fire of the Holy Spirit be evident in the conduct of your lives. And now receive the benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.